do all those one another's. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this evening, turn with me, if, if you would, to the book of Revelation. As uh, those of you who have been coming, you know that we're going verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And we have already, brethren, made it halfway through the book of Revelation. We're going into the second half of it, obviously, the, this evening as we uh, continue here, as we pick it up together in chapter 12. We're re- reading verses 1 through 6, Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And brethren, these are indeed... The very words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the inspired, preserved words that he would have us to hear and to have in his word this evening. Verse number one, Revelation chapter 12, look at verse number one. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head, upon his heads. Notice plurality there. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God to be uh, uh, into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place repaired of God, and they, <clears throat> that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Well, there's a lot, again, brethren, as we always know in the book of Revelation. And as we begin chapter 12 here, let me remind us again this evening, and I think we all understand this, that the book of Revelation is not necessarily always written in chronological order. Amen. And I mean, this is a thing when we go through the book of Revelation, you have to understand that this is taking place in heaven, this is taking place on the earth, and sometimes it's not in chronological order. In fact, as we look and remember, chapters 4 through 9 deal, as we've been through, with the overall timeline of the tribulation, whereas chapters 10 and 11 act as a parenthesis, if you will, a stop in the action. And we looked at that. We've been looking at these, obviously. They reveal, chapters 10 and 11 revealed to us, some of the behind-the-scenes, if you will, activities of the Lord our God. So there's a parenthesis there, the judgments have stopped, and then we're seeing what God is doing uh, in, in heaven as, we, as it is revealed to us. And you remember that chapter 11 closes with the Lord Jesus claiming his rightful dominion, amen, over all of the kingdoms of the world. Now, we're beginning chapter 12, and in chapters 12 through 19, what they're going to do is... It's going to, if you will, it's going to take us again back through the tribulation, if you will, uh, giving us a much more detailed look, if you will, at the events and characters of the tribulation, period. I like what one writer said, in chapters 4 through 9, we see the events of the tribulation through a telescope. In chapters 12 through 19, we see it through a microscope. And it's interesting here as we begin this evening that in chapters 12 and 13, the Spirit of God introduces us to seven personages, and I just want to see that we're going to kind of have a kind of a general overview of this, and then we'll delve into it a little bit, but I want you this evening to see the personages that the Spirit of God is going to introduce us to in chapters 12 and 13, some of the main characters, if you will, in the text that follow, in the chapters that follow. Verse number one, we notice that he introduces us to a woman. Look there at verse number one. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. And then we get a a pretty detailed description of what she's clothed in. Verse number three, as we read there, look there, we're introduced to a great red dragon. Look at verse number three. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. 
having, and then again, another description of the great red dragon. Verse number five, look there, introduces us to a man-child. Look at verse number five. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations. And we're going to, again, get down into this, but I want you to see who we're being introduced to in these two chapters. Look at verse number seven. The archangel Michael we are introduced to. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And so, again, another character within these chapters that we're going to be looking at that the Spirit of God feels is so important that he introduce us to. Look at verse number uh, 17 of that chapter 12. Look at there, verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went, and ma- uh, went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And so we're going to be introduced to the remnant of the woman's seed, which is really, really important. It plays a major role. And again, brethren, if anyone believes for a moment, again, as we have been going through the book of Revelation, that the book of Revelation is not Jewish in many, 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 many ways, many ways. God is by no means finished dealing with the nation of Israel as we see here in this particular portion of Scripture. Look at chapter 13, verse number 1. Again, we're introduced to another character within another personage, if you will, within these chapters. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Well, who's the beast that rises up out of the sea? We all know who that is, amen. And we're again, when we get there, we will look into that a little closer. The Antichrist, of course. Look at verse number 11. Not only we're introduced in chapter 12 and chapter 13 to the beast, the Antichrist, but look at there, the beast out of the earth. Look at verse number 11. And behold... And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns with a lamb, like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And so, again, we're getting a description of these characters that are going to play some major roles as the book of Revelation continues on through chapter 19. And, of course, we understand this beast coming up out of the earth is a false prophet. And so, again, we see many of the characters there. And so, as we address Revelations 12 and 13 and following, amen, again, we will see these characters, if you will, these personages as they come up, and as God uses them for his own purpose and his own glory. That's the beauty of it tonight, this evening, brethren, is that God is sovereign in control of all things that are taking place. And so, again, these characters, if you will, these personages are all going to be used for God's glory. And really what John does as we begin chapter 12 is he gives us a survey Now, this is interesting, brother. Again, the Jewishness of the book of Revelation just cannot ever be overlooked. He gives us a survey of the war, if you will, that Satan has had on God and having with God and with the Jewish people. Again, that's where it's centered at, and this is what it's about, is God is going to save his remnant, the remnant of Israel, and, of course, others who are saved during the time of the tribulation as the eternal gospel is preached to them. But mainly this evening, our text has to do, again, with God's Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Now look there again at verses 1 and 2 as we read them together. We'll kind of work our way down through these uh, as, as far as we can. Look at verse number 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. 
Now again, brethren, as we get into chapters 12 and 13, we will notice here that John says that there is a great wonder, a sign that appears. Literally, that word wonder literally means a sign. And so this is one of seven signs that we'll see as we go through, through chapter 19. Again, this great sign. In fact, as John describes these things, he puts that word great in front of this sign, this woman. There's a great wonder, a great sign. He says, no, that has and brought to our attention great significance. That's literally what God is saying there. When John is led by the Spirit of God to write a great wonder, a great sign, he's telling us that this is something that is of great significance that's going to play out as we look there in these chapters. In fact, look at verse number three. He uses that word great again. This again, these are the characters, if you will, the characters of these chapters. Look at verse number three. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. And so again, this is something that is of great significance that he's drawing our attention to. He says it again in verse number 9. Look at verse number 9 there, if you would, of chapter 12. And the great dragon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil. And so again, this is the descriptive language that John is being led by the Spirit of God to use. This is very significant. These are the things that are going to be drawn to our attention. Look at verse 12. He uses it again in chapter 12. Look at there. Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down unto you having what? Great wrath. So there's that word again that John uses again. This is of great significance because we know that Satan understands he only has a short time and he's going to bring some great wrath upon uh, the anger that he has. This is just a picture of the most demonic and evil that you can even begin to describe. And this is what John is doing. In fact, look at verse 14. There's, great, there's the great wrath, there's the great red dragon, there's a great sign. And now look at here, look at verse number 12. Again, he draws this very significant thing, or verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. Now, isn't it interesting as we read these passages, amazing all of the typology. Remember, we as, as Bible-believing Christians, we interpret the text as literal, unless the Bible tells us differently, amen? That is how we interpret things in Scripture. And so the book of Revelation is no different. And so we're going to look at this interpretive language, really, that is being used here, that John uses, continues to use in chapters 12 and 13. As I said, this is the first of seven of the glorious wonders and signs that we're going to see as we traverse through the rest of the book of Revelation through chapter 19. The sign in our text, John says, is a woman. And the identity of this woman has, if you will, been the subject of much debate and much, brethren, false doctrine over the centuries. It's an amazing, stunning thing as people read Scripture. And if you don't eisegete the Scriptures, if you, or, or exegete the Scriptures, you eisegete them. In other words, people are putting into the text what's something the text does not say. Let me give you a couple of examples of those who... Uh, what people think this woman is. Roman Catholics, as you know, believe this woman is Mary, the Queen of Heaven. <laughs> this is what they do. You've all seen pictures of it. You've seen pictures of the moon and the, under her feet and the stars, and she's there, and she's the Queen of Heaven. They literally believe that she ascended up to heaven, which she did not. There is not one thread, not one stretch of any kind of biblical or anything else knowledge that that took place. And number two, when you think about this, this birth that's taking place is in heaven. Mary never gave birth in heaven. Where did Mary give birth? <laughs> well, here on the earth. And so it can't possibly be Mary. There's no way you can insert her in there. Mary Baker Eddy, who's heard of her before? Anybody know who she is? 
Mary Baker Eddy, uh, uh, claimed that she was the woman, and the religion that she gave birth to in 1879 was the Christian science. That was the man-child. And so you see the, the depths that people will go, amen. But there's something also within the conservative camp, within the conservative believers, that has been taught, and I think wrongly, some believe the woman is the church. Brothers and sisters, let me just say this to you this evening. The church has not replaced Israel, okay? It has not. There are promises, as we have said, there are promises that have been given to Israel that God gave to them that only apply to Israel, that can only be fulfilled as he gives it to Israel. And so this can't be the church, brother, and why can't it be the church? Why can't it be? Because the woman's giving birth. The, the Lord Jesus Christ, the man-child, is the one who gave birth to who? To the church. It's not the other way around. So it's not the church. It is clearly, brethren, a symbolic, if you will, picture of the nation of Israel. There is no question about it. This woman, who is a symbolic representation of Israel, is clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet, the Bible says there. She wears a crown with the 12 stars. That do indeed represent the 12 tribes of Israel. There is no question about that. Let's turn this evening in the Old Testament. Let us let the Old Testament define for us what we're reading. Amen. And again, this is what's important. When you, when you study Scripture and when you read Scripture, you must allow, again, continuity within the Scripture. You must allow the systematic Bible teaching to take place so that you're not saying it's Mary Baker Eddy or that it's you know, Mary or somebody like that. It is indeed, brother. And if you look in Scripture, Scripture will define itself. You just have to look and study it and allow the scriptures to speak to you. Look at Genesis chapter 37. Let's just go back there again. And uh, we'll see here again God who is so gracious to us, so glorious in all that he does. He gives us a description here of Jacob, of Joseph's mother, and of the brothers. And we all remember this is a very familiar portion of Scripture to all of us. This is something, that, again, that God used, amen, for his glory. He used to draw and take the, the, the Israelites onto himself. But in the meantime, Joseph went through some things. We remember he was sold into Egypt, and then he was raised up. And then now we have this discussion here in Genesis chapter 37. Before Joseph is given away, he has a dream. And uh, he's telling the dream. And uh, I want you to pay careful attention to the definitions that he gives here in Genesis chapter 37. Look at verse number 9. Joseph says, And he dreamed yet another dream, and told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the what? The sun and the moon and the stars. And so he's referencing the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now it's interesting because, again, in chapter 10, it is defined who the sun, the moon, and the stars are. There's no guessing. So he's using the sun, the moon, and the stars as an illustration. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, earlier in Genesis chapter 15, do you remember what God told Abraham? He said that the nation of Israel will be as the stars and the sand of the seashore. Amen. But you see here again, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they're all going to do obeisance to me, Joseph said. So look there if you would. Look what it says. And he dreamed yet another dream, and behold, it, it, it uh, told his, his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the, star, even, and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. Not twelve. Why isn't there twelve stars there? Well, because Joseph isn't there yet. The twelve that we're reading in the book of Revelation includes Joseph within, within the brothers. Only here there's eleven, which is amazing. 
made obeisance to me. So in other words, look at verse 10. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I, the son, and the moon your mother, shall I and thy mother, you see that there again, this is what he's illustrating, this is what he's saying, the son, thy mother, and thy brethren indeed, come and bow down ourselves to thee in the earth. And his brother envied him, and his father observed the saying. So again, we see here again this description that God gives in Genesis chapter 37. is the exact uh, description that we see John giving here in, in Revelation. It's not Mary. It's not Mary Baker Eddy. It's not Elvis Presley. It is indeed, brethren, the nation of Israel. It is the representative of them. In fact, like I said, the 11 stars are the sons of Israel who bow down to Joseph. And John signed with 12 stars. Joseph is now among his brothers being listed. That's why there's 12. In fact, over and over again, brethren, in Holy Writ, in the Old Testament, Israel is described as one who is giving birth. It's quite an amazing thing, brethren, when you understand and you see what God has done for us. Amen. Giving us this beautiful description, giving us this clear understanding in Scripture. Look at Isaiah chapter 26, just a couple of them. Again, Israel over and over again, God is describing Israel as someone who is giving birth. And uh, we see this again over and over in Scripture. Look at Isaiah chapter 26, just a couple of them here. Isaiah is, as you all know, he is known as the great uh, evangelical Old Testament prophet. He preached more about the Lord Jesus Christ than any other prophet did in the Old Testament. And we see here in Isaiah chapter 26, I want you again to see the description that God uses concerning Israel and how he viewed them. Look there, if you would, at verse number 15. Isaiah chapter 26, look at verse number 15. And he clarifies it here. Thou hast, thou hast increased the nation. Well, who's that? Well, that's the nation of Israel. O Lord, thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Lord, in trouble they have visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. And we all know Israel's history with God. It's up and down. They're, one minute they're worshiping God. The next minute they're offering their children up to Moloch. It's a stunning thing to behold. But look at verse 17. Look what Isaiah writes. Like as a woman with child that draweth near. Again, this is the nation of Israel. Verse 15, this is who he's talking about. Like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pains. So we have been in thy sight, O Lord. Look at verse 18. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. In other words, they have brought forth nothing. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. So again, we see here a description of the nation of Israel, one who's giving birth, one who's getting close to giving birth. God uses that illustration over and over. Look at Isaiah 54, just a couple of them here is all. There's, a, there's so many of them, but look at Isaiah chapter 54. <clears throat> again, just a couple of them here. Isaiah chapter 54, look at verse number 1. Isaiah 54, <clears throat> look at verse number 1. This is, of course, dealing again with, with Israel, as it always is, the assurance that the Lord's going to restore Israel. Look at verse 1. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, and break forth in the singing and cry aloud that thou didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children to be mar to, of the married wife. 
saith the Lord. So again, he's speaking specifically to the nation of Israel. This is who he's speaking of. Now move ahead a little bit just to verse number 5 again. He says, this is the nation. This is who I'm speaking of. I'm going to restore the nation of Israel. They are, if you will, one who is giving birth. Look there again at verse number 5. Look at how the descriptive language again here that God uses concerning Israel. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but the everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord of thy Redeemer. So again, we see here, brethren, this idea that God is Israel's husband, and she is in this constant fight, this constant battle, this constant, if you will, ongoing struggle to give birth. And again, this is what John is referencing to. And as we all know, and we're going to see here in just a moment, we're going to see, brethren, this battle that Satan has had with God all along the way as he was, uh, if you will, bringing forth the Messiah from Genesis chapter 3 on. That was his promise. And from Genesis chapter 3 on, we see Satan himself battling with God, trying to what? What was his greatest fear and concern that the devil had? Amen. Was the lineage of Christ. See, if you do away with the lineage of Christ, if you adulterate that, then you don't have Christ. Amen. You don't have the lineage of David. You don't have the tribe of Judah. None of that is there. And so we see that battle again. This is what it's about. This is what he's been after since day one, since that promise that God made to him uh, in the garden that time uh, there in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, look at the New Testament for a moment. Again, this idea of giving birth, this idea of bringing forth the Messiah, Romans chapter 9. And brethren, it's Wednesday night, if I can ask you, <clears throat> Romans chapter 9 is what? What does Romans chapter 9 deal with? You can blurt it out. With what? What does it deal with? Romans 9 is all about the past history, the past dealing of God with Israel. Amen? That's what it's about. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 10 is about what? The present dealing. And Romans chapter 11 is future dealings that God's going to deal with Israel. So, again, we see that here in Romans chapter 9. Again, God's speaking to the nation of Israel concerning this idea of pains and birth pains and bringing forth and giving birth. Look what he says here, if you would, in verse number 3. Romans chapter 9, Paul again here is speaking about and being led by the Spirit of God to write these words about God's past dealings with Israel. Look at what he says. For I could wish that myself were accursed from, the, uh, from Christ for my brethren, for my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, of whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Look, listen to that, brethren. Look at, at the glorious advantages. God elevated the nation of Israel. Look at all that he gave to them. This is where the Christ is to come. This is the birthing that's going to take place. Look there now, verse 5. He lays it out there. The, the, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the promises, the giving of the law, the service of God. And then he says this in verse 5. Whose are the fathers of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came? Do you see that there again, brother? And it's the idea here is God is using the nation of Israel and used the nation of Israel to birth the Messiah. This is who we are seeing in the book of Revelation. There is 
No reason to try and guess. There's no reason to try and say, hey, we know who this is. It's Mary Baker Eddery, whoever it is. It is God speaking about the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and what God is going to do. And what they did is he used them to bring forth the man-child that we're going to read about now here in the book of Revelation. By the way, brethren, if you look at Revelation 12, look at just verse number 5. I want to bring that to our attention quickly. Again, so there's this birthing thing that takes place. There's this battle, this war that's going on that we see right here in our text and are going to see in verses 3, 4, and 5. But look there again, if you would, at verse number 5. And she, who is she? That's Israel. And she brought forth a man-child, that's Christ, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This is Christ being brought forth. This is Christ at his first advent. Christ at his second advent, he will be ruling, brethren, with a rod of iron in his millennial kingdom as he sets it up there. It's an amazing thing. Even as we saw at the end of chapter 11, that all of the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of who? Christ, where he will rule as he rightfully deserves and will certainly be. But, brethren, there is, again, this idea of three other symbolic women that we see in the book of Revelation. I want you to see this again. This isn't just old Pastor Mike making things up. This is something, again, that God has done and has will do. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Look at the first one, if you would. The first symbolic, I happen to believe it is a real woman that has this symbolic spirit, and it is one that we're familiar with. We see it all the time. Uh, Brother Keith isn't in here right now, but we saw it when we went preaching down at the Capitol. We saw it when we go stand out on the street. We see the spirit of Jezebel alive and well, brethren. It's a stunning thing to behold. But look at here. Here's one of them, one of the four that we see in the book of Revelation personified. Look at Revelation chapter 2. We looked at this already, but I want to bring this to your remembrance. If you're like me, maybe you're not like me. Maybe you remember everything, but I forget things. And so uh, it's good to be reminded. Look there at verse number 20, the Lord Jesus speaking. He says this, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman who, Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, you remember we looked here. Jezebel is indeed a type. A picture, brethren, if you will, of a religious system that is promoting false teaching. Paganism. Read the, read the text there. That's, that's what it is. This is what we're warned of first. Look at the second woman. She's known as a harlot. Look at Revelation chapter 17. I, always, I don't laugh about it, but it is interesting. I always, when you talk to young men, they're looking for a wife. It's a good thing to take them to the book of you know, Proverbs. And then you say, well, there's seven women spoken of in the book of Proverbs. Can I ask you guys tonight, how many of them are we warned to stay away from in the book of Proverbs? There's seven that are spoken of. How many are we to stay away from? Sick. Who said it? Sick. Yes. There's seven women described in the book of Proverbs. Six of them, God says, you stay away from this one, from these six. Find this one, Proverbs 31. Amen. That's, that's what you want to find. And, uh, but he warns us. But again, we see here the spirit of Jezebel. That's one of the women personified there in the book of Revelation. Look at this one here. This, of course, is the scarlet woman, the harlot. Again, one that you want to steer clear from. Look there, Revelation 17. Look at verse number 3. John writes, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Can't wait to get to that particular text. 
And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of the abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great, there's that word again, great admiration. So again, we see the spirit of Jezebel, a woman personified here. We see the harlot being personified. You know what that, it's really, brethren, if you see there, that is definitely the apostate church teaching, brethren, false doctrine and false religion. There is no question about it, but we see that there. Look at the fourth one, though. This is the one, brethren, that we certainly would certainly um, want to be a part of. Look at Revelation chapter 19. This, of course, would be the true church. We have the Jezebel, we have the apostate church, and here we have the true church. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse number 7 there, if you would, with me. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife, there it is, there's that woman. That's the kind of woman, amen, you want to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be found in him, one who is spotless and blameless and one who's covered with the blood of Christ. That's the woman, that's the wife, that's the one that you want to be involved in. The Bible says there, his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And so again, brother, we see... God so graciously and clearly teaching us and showing us, amen, this is what you should do, this is where you should go, this is where you shouldn't do, and this is where you shouldn't go, amen, and that's a beautiful thing. God never leads void. If he takes something out, he fills it in with his holy and his goodness, and we see that here with that kind of woman, the wife personified in the church. It truly is the nation of Israel that God chose to be the womb by which he would send the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. Satan, as I said, has always attacked the line of Judah, the line of the Messiah, and John's focus in our text tonight is clearly, brethren, on Israel as the context from which Christ came. This is what he's saying. This is what he's preaching to us, that Christ is going to come through that lineage, through the nation of Israel. This is who he's describing. Now look back there at Revelation chapter 12. Look at verse number 3. Look at verse number 3, and then we'll probably... uh, We'll tie ourselves up with this this evening and finish. Look at verse number 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, as we've already looked at, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Now, brethren, we're not going to get through this this evening. There's a lot here, but I do want to take just a moment and kind of get us going in that right direction. John records here again that there's another sign, another wonder, he says, Not only is there a woman who's giving birth and going to try to give birth, but there's another sign. This is the second sign that we see in the book of Revelation here as we continue on through chapter 12. It is a description, brethren, that is used in holy writ of the enemies of God. Over and over and over again, God calls his enemies dragons. It's it's an amazing thing. It really is when when you consider and you look at what he's saying. Who is God's greatest enemy? Nobody but Satan himself. And look what he calls him here. He calls him a dragon. In fact, he calls him a great dragon. It really is quite an amazing thing. In fact, there's another man in the Bible that God called a dragon. You know who it is? 
Turn with me, if you would, this evening to the book of Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel chapter 29, a very familiar name that all of us will know. Who was an enemy of God? He was an enemy of Israel. In fact, they were enslaved by this particular man. God hardened his heart, wouldn't let his people go, brings it to the end. Guess what God calls him? He's an enemy of God. He's an enemy of God, but guess what God calls him? Look at here, if you would, Ezekiel chapter 29. Look there at verse number 3. Ezekiel chapter 29, look at verse number 3. Speak and say thus, saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. <laughs> there you go. He's calling Pharaoh. He's, he's uh, describing for us who he's talking about. Look what he calls him right there. I am against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lieth in the sea. You see that there again. He's calling Pharaoh a dragon who is an enemy of God. He was an enemy of God's people. He's an enemy of God. And God just calls him right out and says, you are a dragon. You're a serpent, if you will, that lieth in the midst of his rivers, which he hath said, my river is mine own, and I have made it for myself. In fact, again, this character, this dragon, Again, if you look at Isaiah chapter 27, I'll give you the verse, verses 1 through 3. God says he will slay the dragon. And if you go and look at the context of Isaiah chapter 27, you will see that it, that deals with the battle of Armageddon. There is no, in fact, turn back there. Let's just look at that, Ezekiel chapter 27. Let me just show you this here, what the Bible says. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Now, uh, thou son of man, take up a lamentation for, for uh, Tyrus, and say unto Tyrus, O thou that art uh, uh, situate in the entity of the sea, which art a merchant of the people of many isles, thus saith the Lord God of Tyrus, Thou hast said, I am perfect beauty. Thy borders are in the midst of the seas, and the builders have perfected thy beauty. And that's not right. <laughs> I'm not in the right, that's not the right passage. Uh, oh, Isaiah 27. There you go. Go to Isaiah 27. That's right. That's what I did. I put the wrong, the wrong guy down there. It's Isaiah chapter 27. Look there. I'm reading that going, that's not right. <clears throat> Look at Isaiah chapter 27. Just back up there. Look what the Bible says there. This, of course, again, is Isaiah writing concerning Israel's restoration during Christ's reign. This is directly tied right to the battle of Armageddon. Verse number 27. Look at verse number 1. In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked servant, serpent, and he shall slay the what? The dragon that is in the sea. And when does this happen? When does he slay the dragon in the sea? Again, Satan over and over again in the book of Revelation is called a dragon, an enemy of God. I just want to look at a couple of them. Look at chapter 12 alone of Revelation. Look at how many times he calls him a dragon, an enemy of God. Look there, if you would, at Revelation chapter 12. Look at verse number 4. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. That is, that is a war against God's people and against the Lord Jesus Christ. The dragon, there he is, the enemy of God, standing right there. Look at verse number 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. So again, we see this idea here. The enemies of God, many times in Scripture, are called by himself a dragon. Look at verse 13 of chapter 12. Again, he says it again. 
And when the dragon saw that he was cast onto the earth, he persecuted the woman. Do you notice this? You see the connection between the dragon and the war. There's a war going on between God and Satan himself, the dragon. In fact, number nine, verse number 9 says there, if you will, look at verse number 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. And there he is right down here towards the end of the verse. Verse 15, look at verse number 15. The serpent cast his mouth at water. Flood was wonder that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Again, this battle, this war that's taking place. And God calls him a dragon. Look there, if you would, at uh, Revelation chapter 13. (laughs) Again, he shows up again. Look at verse number 2. Look at the Bible there. And the beast, which I saw, was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as a, like feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. There it is again. God fighting, if you will, Satan battling against God himself. It's an amazing thing. Look at verse 4. There it is again. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Again, we see this idea. You see this, brethren? Again, I'm not a broken record. Scripture is just simply delineating to us what he's talking about. That's all it is. In fact, I'll give you the verse. Revelation 20, 1 and 2, and then verse 10 is where Isaiah 27 is actually completed. Where, as we see there in Revelation 21 and 2 and 10, where... God takes the dragon, binds him up, throws him into the lake of fire. Amen. That's where he slays the dragon. It's an amazing thing. God's victory over his enemies. Well, let me just, let me just read verse 3. We'll touch on this for just a moment, and then we'll, we'll close in prayer this evening. Look there again at verse number 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and Ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Satan is depicted here as who he truly is. God again knows him. He knows him well. He's depicted as a seven-headed monster who rules the world. And again, brother, this is what's going to take place. This is what Jesus Christ's coming is going to destroy with his great glorious coming. This Satan, this dragon who thinks he's a ruler of the world, is going to be destroyed at the Christ's second coming. It's going to be a glorious thing. I can't wait these heads represent seven consecutive world empires running their course under Satan's rule. In fact, I'll give them to you, and then we're going to, we don't have enough time this evening to get down into it, but Egypt, Assyria, that's two, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the Antichrist, future empire, which is the revived Roman Empire. That's seven. So again, we see the representation here of Satan who thinks that he is all-powerful. In fact, remember in chapter 11, that's why chronologically you have, to, you have to look and see what the revelation is doing because if you go chronologically in chapter 11 at the end, Jesus already has all the kingdoms of all the world. Well, if you continue on now again, this is the detail that he's going to get into. This is the detail he's going to give to us with the characters, with all that's taking place, with Israel with uh, those who are still lost. There's still people outside of Israel, amen, who will be saved. There are still those who will be saved during the tribulation period. But again, our text is centered on and centrally located on the nation of Israel and what God is going to do with them in the end times. So be aware of these seven, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the revived Roman Empire. 
those seven are going to be, again, play very clearly into our text as we go along. And the seventh kingdom is ruled by the Antichrist, will be a ten-nation confederacy. We know that again. I don't have time tonight, but we'll just, I'll just touch the top. The ten horns represent the ten kings who will rule under the Antichrist. There's no question about that and his revived Roman Empire. In fact, Daniel chapter 7 speaks of ten, if you will, horns who are ten kings. In fact, look at Revelation 17, and we'll, we'll close with this. Look at Revelation chapter 17. Daniel speaks of it. And you remember Daniel was a great preacher of the end times. God used him to write a lot concerning the millennium, concerning what was going to take place in the middle of the millennium, uh, the, the, the tribulation period, what's going to take place in the middle of the tribulation period when the sacrificing will cease. And here, again, Daniel defines for us in chapter 7, ten horns are the ten kings. Look at Revelation 17, and we'll close with this this evening. And then, uh, Lord willing, we'll take it up again next Wednesday evening and get into more depth, if you will. Look at verse number 12. Look at verse number 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are what? Ten kings. Again, there, there, there's no... Brother, we don't have to make this up. We don't have to stand... Pastor Mike doesn't have to stand up here and make this up. The Bible tells us what it is. Clearly. There's, there's just no wondering about it. The ten horns are the ten kings. That's what John saw. I mean, it's very clear. Look there if you would. And there are seven, uh, verse number uh, 11, or 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as of yet. <laughs> that's the Roman, that's, that's the Antichrist kingdom that's going to be given to him, that he's going to be allowed to rule in for a very short period of time. Uh, here we saw, receive no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. And brethren, it's going to be interesting to see how God unveils this thing, how he stands victorious and what he's going to be doing. This is why, brethren, we look around us, don't we? And I need to close. <laughs> we look around us at, at, at our nation. I mean, my goodness gracious. Um, if you don't think evil's reigning, there's something wrong with you. Amen? And yet in that, as we have seen before, even in the tribulation, in that evil, God, brings forth many victories. Isn't it amazing to see that? I mean, brothers, let me just recap quickly, and then we've got to quit. Right in the middle of one of the most evil presidents our nation has ever had, ever. I mean, apart from Barack Obama, I think probably one of the most evil presidents. He is a pro-baby killer like nobody has ever been. He's pro-whatever, LBGPQRSTUVWXYZ, whatever thing you want to add on. He's anti-family. He's anti-man, anti-woman. Until God gives victory within a nation who's under his judgment. And think of this, brethren. When Roe v. Wade gets overturned and gets sent back to the state, that's a great victory. In the middle of judgment, of God's judgment. And you see that. It's amazing, isn't it? The most wicked president the most wicked administration that this country's ever seen. And right in the middle of it, God says, because of what I did earlier, a couple years earlier, six years earlier, when you all thought that I couldn't raise up the president that I'm going to raise up and put in office, amen? It's good to recount the blessings of God. Even though Trump is 
well, he's not exactly a moral Christian man. Okay, he's not. And I don't care what the evangelicals say. But yet God used him like he did Cyrus and like he did every other king that he put in place. If God wouldn't have put Trump there, at least at this time in our history, Roe v. Wade would have never been overturned. In fact, it would have been if, if Hillary Clinton would have won, brother, and just think of what would have happened. Think of what would have happened. The pro-life judges wouldn't be there. Roe v. Wade would not be overturned. You see the working of God. God's always working, if I can use this terminology, upstream. His purposes are always working upstream. This is taking place so that this can take place. One more victory we've had, brethren, as Bible-believing Christians and gun-toting Americans, which I think we should all be. Think of that in New York. Again, the time of judgment. There's judgment taking place. And what happens? The Second Amendment is upheld, again, with the most evil president, the the most anti-gun people you can think of. And here's God, sovereign God, simply moving and saying, nope, I'm going to put this here, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that right in the midst of judgment. And this is what we see all during the tribulation, all during the great tribulation, which the tribulation and the great tribulation are not the same. It's part of the same time period, but it's not the same. Even in that, we will see men and women being saved. God's grace in the greatest time of judgment this world will ever see. It's amazing. as I get goosebumps thinking about that, that God is so gracious and so good in that, that he would still save sinners, even in the midst, while he's bringing his judgment. I mean, judgment like the world, again, has never seen and never will see again. And yet in that, he's working through his glorious purposes. Even tonight, he's drawing Israel. He's doing these things. He's working all these things out according to his glorious purpose. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we are never at a loss for amazement concerning your word, concerning what you are doing. And really, the clarity of it, it's always amazing to me. The book we're in is called the book of Revelation. (laughs) What does that mean? Well, it means to reveal. It is not to hide things. The book of Revelation is not a dark, spooky book that's hid this and that's hid. There there are some things that have not been revealed yet, but there are some things that are very plain, very clear in Scripture. In the book of Revelation, you are revealing what you're going to be doing during the tribulation time with Israel. And I hearken back to the glorious covenant you made with them. You said, hey, if the sun and moon and stars cease to shine, if the seasons stop, then they will cease to be a nation before me. And Father God, we are gloriously amazed in that. We cannot take the church and put it in Israel's place. And I know, oh, we're not, we're not saying that. Yeah, yeah, yes, you are in a big way. God in the past made many promises to them alone. I think of a couple of them that applied to no one else, nobody. Why don't we apply this one to the church? If you're obedient to me, your animals will not dispel their young. I know a lot of Christian farmers who 
lose calves every year. That was a promise given to Israel alone. And you know what? They never dispelled their, their young. It's amazing. There's so many of them. And Father, even now we see in the last book of Holy Scripture, the book of Revelation, that yes, even now you are still continuing to bring forth your glorious plan for them and for us, the church. The church, though, is not a stopgap measure. It wasn't. The church is something that you've always had in view. This is indeed the dispensation of what we would call the time of the Gentiles. You have indeed, as Romans 11, your future dealing with Israel says, you have given them a spirit of slumber even now for a short period of time in history during the church dispensation. But when the church dispensation comes to a close, there will be a renewed, if you will, we read it, right, in Zechariah chapter 12 and Zechariah 13. There is a fountain for healing for those who are in Jerusalem and for Jacob. Those are Israelites. Those aren't the church. There's a remnant. There's a third that's spoken of in Zechariah. They will be saved, just as you said in Romans chapter 11. All of Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Every Israelite? No, every believing Israelite. Everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be reigning in Zion, according to Romans 11, from the millennial temple as king and ruler. And yes, that is when you will open the eyes of the nation, those who will believe, that they might, as Zechariah wrote, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced, and they will weep with great sorrow. They haven't seen him yet. Some Jewish people are being saved during the church age. Yes, the gospel is reaching them, but there will be something glorious with that gospel during the time of the tribulation, where you will show yourself mighty and glorious and strong, saving Jew and Gentile alike, which again is a stunning thing to see. So, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the Bible. I thank you for the brethren who are here this evening, those who are watching, and those, many who couldn't be with us tonight. We pray for them as well. We ask and pray all these things now in the mighty name of our Lord and our Savior, he who will rule all the nations with an iron fist, he who rules in the hearts of his people right now through the Holy Spirit of God, who sealed us for that great day. And Father, we thank you for that. We pray in his name and all God's people said, amen, amen.